0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week we looked at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We looked at Paul's letter to these Christians and how he wanted to remind them of the things that he had previously taught them, how he wanted to give them hope and encouragement in these things uh, and to correct uh, the wrong path in which some of them were taking in the living of their lives. We saw Paul's deep concern for the Thessalonians and that comes out again now in this second letter to the Thessalonians. Even after the first letter that he sent to them, these Christians were still troubled, particularly about uh, the end times, the return of Christ and what that would involve. And Paul writes a letter, another letter now, not only reminding them of how Christians should live in light of the end, which is really the bulk of chapter three, but he also reminds them specifically of what the end will look like, seeking to correct error they have heard and all the while encouraging them to stand firm in the truth that he had once told them, and which he is also telling them now in this letter. And as we think about. Uh, this situation for ourselves. There's uh, multiple things that we could take away from this, but the thing I want us to hear most clearly, most loudly, is the thing I think Paul is wanting them to hear most clearly and loudly as well, and that is this, that we are called to stand firm in the truth of God's Word, to not be taken in by lies or deception, by words that would be couched in biblical terms and so sound true, but that we would know what is true, and that we would cling to it for our very lives. So, in order to uh, see the context in which that message is delivered to the 2nd Thessalonians, I want us to read from this letter, uh, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit. Or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved." Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Then may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of God unto us this morning. There are three components that make up Paul's argument here uh, that the Thessalonians should be standing in the truth. Three components to his argument that we should hear this morning as a call for us to stand in God's truth. The first component that we see is this. We see a warning against deceit. We see a warning against deceit. The founder of the Jehovah's Witness group, Charles T. Russell, taught the world would come to an end in the year 1874 when 1874 came however and everyone was still around he had to admit he was wrong but he very quickly said he had only misfigured he miscalculated the date and that the new date was now the year 1914 eventually 1914 came and the end didn't happen Christ did not return as they had promised but his successor Judge J.F. Rutherford said Christ did in fact return on October 1st, 1914, but that it was an invisible return. On that day, yeah, be convenient, huh? On that day, Christ exchanged an ordinary seat at the right hand of God for the throne of His kingdom. So no physical return of Christ was to be expected because the spiritual return had already happened. Now, when you read the Bible, that view doesn't really make a lot of sense, at least not to me. But reading the the JW's teaching on it, you hear biblical language. You hear the words of Scripture being taken up and being used to convey this false message. It is the right words, but it is the wrong truth. It does not accurately convey The message of what the Bible actually says about the return of Christ. In a very similar way, the Thessalonians uh, have been duped. They have been unsettled uh, by what they received, which Paul calls a letter seeming to be from us. It sounded a lot like Paul. It used all the right words, but it had wrong theology about the return of Christ. It did not match up to the truth that Paul had previously taught them. So now he is writing in this second letter because he doesn't want any of them, he says, to be deceived in any way. Now the question is, why doesn't he want them to be deceived? Is it just a matter of knowing the truth, knowing truth from error? That's part of it, but that's not all of it. It is that, but it is more than that. It's not just knowing the truth It's got to be more of that because knowing the truth is supposed to have an effect on our lives. Listen again to what he says beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Why does Paul not want them to be deceived? Because being deceived about the truth will cause them to be, in his words, quickly shaken in mind and alarmed. You see, the Thessalonians are being taught something uh, perhaps similar to what the JWs teach today, that the blessings of the end had already come and were collapsed into this present life. Or perhaps they were being taught that the end had already come and they missed it. They were, in fact, abandoned by God still in this life. Either way, they were shaken and they were alarmed by the deception of this false letter. In other words, not knowing the truth has left them emotionally and spiritually troubled. Not knowing the truth has left them off balance and fretful. Therefore, what is the antidote to this? imbalance? What is the the antidote for this worry? Paul says, what brings stability to our lives when we're troubled? And even as we see in chapter three, acting in a way that is unworthy of our calling of our Christ is to be reminded of the truth. What, what causes us to move from being worried and concerned and haggard in our thinking and, and nail-biting wondering what in the world's going on is to come back to the truth of God's Word, particularly the gospel of Christ, and allow it to have a stabilizing effect in our lives. When we are shaken and alarmed, the question is, do we do that? Do we run to God's Word to have the reality reshaped? I mean, even, let's just take it out of the spiritual realm for a moment. There have been times when I have been uh, deceived, as it were. I've been mistaken in my understanding of the facts, and those things have gotten me angry. Okay? Let me give you an example. Uh, I think one of my kids has done something disobedient. And, and, and it's a clear violation of the house rules. They know it's a violation of the rules. And I, and the, and, and I start to get angry. You know this is the rule. Why have you broken this? And, and, I, and I start, to, I start to, to discipline them. And then Melinda says, no, 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 no. I asked them to, 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 to forget about the rules this one time and to help me out and do that. Truth comes. What happens? Oh, okay, I was mistaken. And you, and you feel kind of the calm returning. They hadn't been disobedient. They hadn't been bad children. They had been actually being a good kid obeying their mother. How many times have you heard, well, so-and-so said this about you? What? I can't believe this. And you go to that person, did you say this? No, I didn't say that. Oh, what happens? Your whole attitude and demeanor changes, right? The truth of the situation brings clarity and has a stabilizing effect on your life. Likewise, Paul says in spiritual things and things far more important, the truth of God's word is what stabilizes our lives. It takes us from being off balance, constantly back on our heels, trying to to stay afloat, worried and alarmed about things. So the question is simply this, is that how we respond to difficulty? Is that how we respond in being alarmed and off balance and upset? Do we go back to the Word of God and the truth that is there and find ourselves centered and stabilized? That's what Paul did. He heard about the deception that was troubling the Thessalonians and he gave specific teaching that would dig out what was false that they believed and put back right thinking in its place. This is what we should do as well. Let me give you some examples of what this might, what this might look like. When we feel unsettled by the circumstances of life that may even threaten our very lives, We should go to the Scriptures and remind ourselves that God is sovereign, that everything is under His control. Jesus says there is not a bird that falls dead out of the sky unless God has allowed it to happen. When we're ready to give up on a person, believing that they're never going to change, nothing good is ever going to come out of them, I might as well just write them off, give up, I'm done dealing with that person, then we should remember the truth that God says, with Him all things are possible. That there is no one who is beyond redemption, that He is the one who brings spiritual life, not us. And so we should pray to Him to change the person's heart. When we are drawn to temptation like a moth to a flame, we should remember that God warns us the pleasures of sin are fleeting and only bring death. And we should also remember the promise that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we are taught a false gospel that promises us an easy life without any problems, we should remember Jesus' words that embracing the gospel is about giving up our own lives for His sake. And that in giving up our lives, we will in fact find our lives in Him. In denying ourselves, we will gain forgiveness and joy and life when we feel burdened by the guilt of our feel, our sin and feel as if God should cast us aside and be done with us, when we feel that day after day, week after week, we cannot gain victory over this sin and keep coming back again and again and again, asking God to forgive us, and we feel like He's just going to say, I'm tired of forgiving you, then we should remember that if we are truly in Christ, we are sons of God. We are His children And as His children, He is our Heavenly Father and He promises to never abandon us, to never cast us off, to never forsake us. This is how we fight against fear and deception and sin. It is by turning again and again and again to the truth of God's Word. Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way. Then he gives 10 verses intended to uproot the deception from their minds and prevent them from being shaken and alarmed. How much more should we follow that pattern? In the context of the letter, Paul not only now uh, gives them a warning not to be deceived, but he also now gives them a description of the end. He tells them, look, don't let this false teaching disturb you don't let it disrupt you don't let it deceive you now let me tell you what is really going to happen let me remind you of what the end will look like and again this is the second thing we see a description of the end as we said before the specific deception that was troubling these Christians involved the end times namely that Christ had returned or was in the process of returning and that they were missing it and Paul says let me remind you what I told you before Let me remind you what I've already taught you the truth about Christ's return. Now, you know, you you hate that you have to do it, but anytime you talk about the end times, at least I feel like, you've got to stop and you've just got to, you have to uh, address something. And that is this. There are some Christians that are far too wrapped up in, in this subject. Okay. I'll never forget. We had a visitor several years ago on a Wednesday night. And I was teaching the youth class. They had been here for, for, for prayer meetings. So I, I came on the way out and uh, at that time, just Richard, but now Pastor Richard had said, uh, hey, here's some people visiting. The guy looked at me and he said, hi, I'm so-and-so. Do you preach on Revelation a lot? What kind of question is that? to ask the first time, do you preach on Revelation a lot? And that immediately said to me, this man is obsessed with the end times. And not only everyday Christians, but you find lots of other uh, teachers on television obsessed with the end times every time they open the newspaper see prophecy fulfilled the end is near the end is near you know the people i'm talking about a book comes out every couple of weeks by this person saying you know oh, of that you know if there's a missile strike in israel watch out the lord may return you know uh it's just it's an all-consuming thought with them and don't get me wrong don't get me wrong the return of christ is a great and glorious doctrine there was, in, in fact, reading about some, uh, some missionaries who had come through after other missionaries had come through uh, years before and had been forced to leave, and there was a small group of Christians struggling uh, to survive under communist persecution. And this, uh, this other missionary teacher was coming through and was trying to encourage them and was, was just giving some basic teaching, and he makes this passing comment about the return of Christ. And one of the leaders grabbed him by the arms and says, what did you say? And he says, what? He says, what did you just say? He says, I don't know what you mean. He says, you said Christ is coming back? And he said, yes. He said, nobody told us this. And the man began to weep. The return of Christ is a great and glorious and precious thing. So much so the apostle John at the end of Revelation, he sees all that is happening. He's reminded that Christ is coming back in glory. And he says, even so, come quickly, Lord. But that's a far different prayer than the person who is consumed with speculations about the end times, about horns and signs and stars and Middle East peace conferences and everything else. One is saying, we love Jesus and we want to be with him. We are tired of struggling with sin. We want to be free from its bondage forever. And the other just says, I'm consumed with the details. Paul doesn't want us to be consumed with the details. He wants us to love Christ and long for his return. He doesn't want us to be upset and discombobulated about what is going to happen in the future. That's not what He wants. He wants us to be stabilized. So let me just say, if you, if you watch a TV preacher and he's going off on the end times, and if you read a book about the end times and you walk away from those things and you find yourself scared of barcode readers, if you find yourself worried when you read something about one world government coming, if you find yourself looking over, the sh- over your shoulder wondering, uh, is this person an emissary of the Antichrist? Or if you find yourself wanting to stock up on food, you've probably not heard the truth. Okay? I mean, let me just be real honest. You've probably not heard the truth about what is going to happen at the end. Now, that may step on some toes, but that's okay. Um, I have to say what I think the Word of God says. And, you know, the, the, great, the great thing about Baptist churches is I'm not a pope. And A, I may have it wrong, and B, you may disagree, and that's okay, all right? Nevertheless, I'll tell you what I think Paul's talking about here this morning. What does he say? He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come, that is the day of Christ's return, it will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, I can still remember, I was probably five or six, it was not long after my parents were saved and regularly going to church that I saw a movie about the return of Christ, the great... Christian 70s flick. Great in the sense of uh, it's shown a lot and it's nostalgia when you talk about it's called A Thief in the Night. Anybody ever see that movie? Well, as a five or six-year-old, it had its intended effect on me. It scared the wits out of me, okay? I mean, I was just like totally like bawling, grabbing my parents, ah, you know. And the only thing I can remember from that movie is the beginning where this lady wakes up and she rolls over and the husband's gone. And the only thing that's left of him is his shaver running in the sink. She's going, uh ah, just bawling her eyes out. And people are crying. And there's these hippie guys singing, I wish we'd all been ready. That's all I remember, okay? Uh, but, uh, yeah, I have left, left a defining mark on me, okay? Uh, and, and the problem is that view, that view that is portrayed in that movie, that's portrayed in the Left Behind books, is very popular among Christians in this country. If you go outside this country, there's actually not a lot of people that believe the Bible teaches that. But it has gripped hold of uh, and is a fascination in this country, and that is this, Christ recomes, Christ returns twice. First, he comes in a secret return, in which all of us who are true Christians suddenly kind of disappear out of something called a secret rapture, and the world is left to its own devices, in which Antichrist comes, it rages against the world, and there's seven years of of vicious tribulation, and then Christ returns again and puts a stop to everything, okay? The problem is the Bible doesn't teach that, okay? Paul did not look forward to any secret return of Christ. He looked forward to one great and glorious return in which Christ would come and set all things right. In fact, we see this in 1 Thessalonians itself way back in, or just here in verses 1 and 2, he talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him. It is one event, not two events. And he says, this one event, this return has not yet happened because two things are going to happen first, the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. Now, what is this rebellion and who is this man? Frankly, we're not given a lot of information here about this rebellion, although it is the same word from which we get the word apostasy. That is, apostasy is a falling away from God by those who had previously professed faith in him. So someone says, I'm a Christian. And then at some point in their lives they say, no, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. And they just walk away from the church, they walk away from the things of God, and they never return. The the descriptor of that is called apostasy. You have made a profession of faith, and now you have negated it. You've said, no, I don't care about those things anymore. I don't believe those things. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here, is some kind of apostasy. Specifically, I think he's talking about the same one that he he mentions in 1 Timothy 4, and that Jesus himself mentions in Matthew 24, that before the Lord returns, there will be many who profess. To be Christians, and they will show themselves not to have been Christians, and they will turn their back on Christ and the gospel that they once professed to believe. Far more information is given about this man of lawlessness. This is the same person that is referred to elsewhere, particularly in John's writings, as the Antichrist. Paul says, quote, He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, that's more than just pride or hubris. It's not just saying, I'm the best, and putting your thumbs in your, in your armpits and strutting around. Here is, a, here is a man who is going to come, and he's going to say, all rightful worship belongs to me. You should bow down and worship me. Now, why do you think John calls him Antichrist? Because it's the very opposite of Christ, Right? I mean, if you have an antivirus, it's an injection against the virus you have in your body. This is the person, Jesus comes in the flesh, God incarnate, and says, all rightful worship belongs to me. All other gods are false. And now this guy's going to come and he's going to do the same thing. But in fact, he's going to say, ignore that Jesus guy. I am the real deal. Come and worship me. Furthermore, Paul says this coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. No surprise there with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. This man is going to come and he's going to do great and wondrous things. We don't exactly know even what, what that means. Nevertheless, what we know is ultimately that is coming from Satan himself. Just as Christ came in the spirit and power of his father, so also this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is going to come empowered by Satan himself. And yet Paul says to the Thessalonians, that person hasn't come yet. So you know the end is not yet here. Christ can't have returned because I told you this man would show up first. Why hasn't he come yet though? That's a question, right? Paul says, well, understand this kind of sin and lawlessness that will characterize him in the time of his coming is already at work, and yet it is not time for his appearing. He says in verse 7, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, that's kind of a mouthful and a little bit awkward even, but you're asking, what is this restrainer? What is this thing that's holding back the man of lawlessness? You know what the answer is? We don't know. <laughs> okay? Okay. We don't, we don't know what this thing is because Paul doesn't tell us. I mean, you read that. Uh, uh, verse 5, what does he say? Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he'd be revealed in his time. You want to say, yeah, but Paul, I don't know. Give us another verse. Give us a couple more words. Help a brother out here. Bring some clarity. Well, God apparently thought we didn't need to know. Thessalonians knew knew exactly what was holding him back, but we don't know. Now, some people say, well, it's God or it's God's spirit in the church. But it seems odd, doesn't it, that Paul would not just come out and say that? Why does he say, you know that thing that's holding him back? Like in this veiled term, like why does he, want to, why does he just come out and say God's holding him back? Well, ultimately God is sovereign and He is, and yet there's a secondary means there, isn't there, that, that, that He has in mind. Uh, furthermore, it is both, he says, a what and a he. So whatever this restraining thing is that, is that is preventing the man of lawlessness from emerging in the world is both some kind of a, a power, a, gene, a generic thing, but can also be personified as a he. I think probably, uh, in, in my mind, the best explanation is that this is not something that is opposed to the man of lawlessness, as if he's, he's holding him back and saying, no, not yet, no, not yet, no, not yet but rather someone that is working, in fact, with the man of lawlessness and is working restraining events so that at the right time, he will pop out onto the scene. In other words, it could be the power of evil as embodied by Satan himself and that he is waiting for the right time to release his vilest evil, the Antichrist. But regardless of what it is, frankly, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what that thing is. Paul's, simply, Paul's point is simply this. Whatever that restrainer is, it is restraining this man of lawlessness. He has not yet emerged on the scene. Therefore, the turn of Christ has not yet come. So don't be deceived into believing it's come and he's left you abandoned as orphans. That you weren't really his people. That he's, that he's cut you off from the, the promises. Paul instead is seeking to bring truth to the situation, not to raise their fears, not to cause them confusion and fretting, but to bring stability to their lives. This is why I say if you ever walk away from a, from a message on the end times, you're going, oh man, I'm, just, I'm scared. I don't know where to go and what to do. And what do we? You've probably not heard the truth. Because Paul says the truth about the end brings clarity of thought. It brings stability. So you're not blown around. You can stand firm in the truth and press on regardless of circumstances now some of this for some of you this may be completely foreign to you you may not have ever heard hardly anything about antichrist and the end times and all this kind of stuff so again the point is not to be obsessed about it the point is not to be wondering the point is to be ready but more than that even now i think there's a couple of things that we can take away from this the first is this remember who is king Remember who is king. As bad as this man of lawlessness sounds, as wicked as he is, remember Paul calls him a son of destruction. That does not mean that he will bring about destruction. It means his end is destruction. He will suffer destruction. Specifically in verse 8, he says, This is the man whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I mean, can you imagine that? Here's this man raging against the world, declaring all people should worship him and, and bringing great uh, strife and tribulation to those who would refuse to do that. And yet, here Christ comes, and it's like, poof, he's gone. It's like just the, it says even the, just the appearing of Christ and this, and this antichrist this man of lawlessness is one that people have been afraid of and have wanted to bow down in fear. He is reduced to nothing, mere dust and ash that blows away as something meaningless. Now, if Christ is going to do that at the end, if He is that powerful then, how much more should we trust Him now? We don't get, oh, what's going to happen here? Is this guy the end of Christ? Who cares? We know who the real Christ is. We know who the real King is. And He is sovereign over all things. Secondly, we should love God in His truth. We should love God in His truth. The apostasy reaches its climax with God sending a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now so you read that and you're thinking, What you know, what why is that? Well, frankly, you know, have you ever heard the expression, be careful what you ask for? Some of you in Sunday school talking about Romans 1, I think, this morning. And here's the point: God says, For those who love the lie, for those who love sin. And they want more of it and more of it and more of it. Eventually, he just gives them over to that. This is fine. If that's what you really want, then you can have it. In other words, what they want more than anything is their idolatrous gods. They want their sin even when it leads to destruction. So God sends out this delusion says, fine, believe all the lies you want. But know this is the end that is coming to you. Now, according to verse 10, this delusion and belief in lies comes through the signs and wonders of the man of lawlessness. He deceives those who are perishing. So why are these people so vulnerable to him? Why do so many professing Christians leave the truth and follow his lies? Paul says at the end of the day, at verse 10, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So you see the contrast there? It's not just knowing the truth. It's not just believing the truth is true. It's like you're learning geography or history or something. It's an issue of loving the truth. He says in verse 12 that those who perish, those who fall out of the man of laws, they had pleasure in unrighteousness. The opposite of believing and loving the truth is believing the lies and delighting in sin. What does that mean? That means real faith, real, lasting Christian faith. Faith that endures, that perseveres, that brings salvation is not merely an accepting of the truth. It's a loving of the truth. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is the great Baptist sin. Okay? We fought, in our denomination, we fought a horrendous, And I would say worthwhile battle to say, this book is God's word. There is no error in it. It is not wrong in any way. If science or politics or modern thinking contradicts with it, guess what? This is the tops, even if we don't understand why or how, okay? You had professors in seminaries, you had pastors from pulpits who said the exact opposite. And we said, we don't want that for our denomination, okay? So people went down to vote to put the right people in place as trustees. You could get rid of the bad professors. And you had thousands upon thousands of people going to conventions who were so poor they couldn't afford hotel rooms, so they slept in their car for three nights. All because they loved this book that told them about Jesus and believed it was right. But here's the great sin of Baptists. We intellectually say this book is true, and we leave it on the shelf. And we don't read it, and we don't love it. And you know what Paul says here? He says, that is the kind of people who will fall away and be taken in by lies at the end and reveal themselves not to be true believers. Now, I say that not to scare you, but simply to say, if you really believe this is true, if you really love Jesus, then you will love His Word. You will cherish it. It will be that life-giving source that it says it will be. At the end of the day, one pastor says this, we can be sure that when a man of lawlessness comes, his signs and wonders will be used to support claims that appeal to our natural desires. Therefore, the only defense against this appeal will be a deeper desire for God. If Christ is our portion and our treasure, if he satisfies our longings, and if we love the glory of his gospel, then the mystery of lawlessness will not overcome us and our love will not grow cold and we will endure to the end and be saved. Therefore, this morning, we must strive for and pray for a love for God and His truth. Paul has issued a warning not to be deceived. He has given a description of the end. And now, now in light of these things, he issues a call to stand firm. A call to stand firm. In the previous verses, Paul has sought to dislodge the error the Thessalonians how it has embraced and now he is putting something else in its place in their minds. He's not just correcting the lies. He's not just correcting the error. He's also seeking to give them encouragement. And he tells us the end to which, the goal to which he wants them to be encouraged. Verse 15, So then stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Instead of being shaken, he wants them to stand firm, and he wants them to stand firm by the traditions. That specifically means the teachings about God's word, the truth of God that they were previously taught. Now, what what specific truths does Paul want them to be reminded of and to hold on to? He tells us in verses thirteen through fourteen. He says, "We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved." Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the Thessalonians? Paul says he gives thanks to them because they are those who are loved by God. I would like to put that on your resume sometime. What What are your qualifications for this job? What makes you special? I am loved by God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, right? I mean, we, we go through life sometimes, and we're like, oh, it, it hurt me, and I don't know. Do you are loved by God if you are his son or daughter. That is, that's an amazing thought. And it's not just some kind of general care for what she has for all of creation. No, it is his fatherly love that he extends specifically towards his people. Paul tells us this because he says it is because God chose you to be the first fruits to be saved. It is God's divine, sovereign, electing love that has called into your sin and drawn you to himself. Think, think about it like this. Some of you probably don't have to, to imagine that much, but, but others of us will. Imagine a couple going to an orphanage to adopt, to adopt a child. And before this couple are paraded, all of these kids who need homes. And some of these kids have been through this circle enough times, they know this couple is going to go home with one of us. And so, you know, they've, uh, they've tried to clean themselves up. They've tucked their shirt in and they're kind of standing nice and they're saying please and thank you and they're smiling big and they're, you know, maybe doing tricks with toys that they know or standing on one foot, trying anything to get that couple's attention so that that attention will lead to affection. But then you have other kids, and they don't care. They don't care. They don't care if they're adopted. They don't care about life. They look at this couple, and they say, we don't care anything about them. So they're rude. They use foul language. Maybe they throw their toys. Maybe they come close to talk to them, and they slug them in the face. They're just boorish behavior. And imagine the astonishment if the couple looked to the worst kid there and said, that's the one we want to take home. You would sit there and go, What? What is the matter with you? You can't be a parent if that's the kid you're going to pick. Come on, use some brains here. Get that one. He knows how to read and write and smell. And he smells good. Don't get this one. He's stupid. He's dumb. He stinks. He wets, the, he wets his pants. You don't want that kid. He's worthless. And yet, more than the awe inspiring love of those parents is God who looks at us and sees us not in the filth of excrement, but the the unyielding filth of our sin that causes us to rake and stink up even to heaven itself. He looks at us and he sees nothing valuable in us. He sees nothing that would cause him to say, oh, I, I want him to be my son or daughter. And yet in love he says, I want you. And in loving you, You will be so freed from your sin that you will come to return that affection. That's who the Thessalonians were. That's who all of God's children, all of His Christians are. We are loved by God. Even though we rebel against Him, God still chooses to love us. Paul says, it is in this love then, it is is in this love that He has called you to salvation through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was through the preaching of the gospel that God called the Thessalonians to faith in himself. It was telling how Jesus died in place of sinners so that they would be acceptable to God the Father. And that Jesus did not do this just because it was his idea, but rather it was God himself in love who sent Christ to do this for sinners. It was through this preaching of the gospel that God sent His Spirit to give them spiritual life, that they might put their faith in Christ and receive forgiveness. More than that, God saved them through the gospel so that they may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes clear in Romans 8, once God begins salvation, He doesn't end it. You don't reach a point where you say, you know what, I want off the train. And you're done never reached the point where god says i thought this was a good idea but i've made a mistake i don't love you anymore doesn't say that paul says what god begins he ends so that those he justified he also glorified salvation is this line that begins at our new birth and it does not end until we see christ as he is glorified before him forever Those who receive God's elective loving call and experience new life, God promises to make them holy through the truth of his word. It is not just a matter of God holding on to us that we can't run away from him. He is working deep inside of us. With, with a scoop, as it were, digging out each and every one of our sins, not just bad things we commit, but down on the heart level, he replaces the desires for, for everything that is not good for us with good desires for himself. So that we're not just declared righteous on the final day, we are finally and fully made righteous. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to know this so that regardless of the circumstances they find themselves, they should remember these things. And in remembering these things, they should stand firm in the truth. They should stand faithful, being assured of God's sovereign love, which will continue to be at work in their lives even until the day of Christ's return. This week I read a very harrowing story about a pilot named Henry Dempsey. Back in 1987, he was the pilot of a small 15-passenger Beechcraft 99 airplane going from Portland, Maine to Boston. There were no passengers on the plane, and it was shortly after takeoff, when they were at about 4,000 feet, he heard a noise in the back of the plane that bothered him. So he gave control to the co-pilot, and he went back to see what it was. And as he approached uh, the rear stairwell uh, that would pop down onto the, the tarmac, the plane hit turbulence. He smacked into that stairwell, and it flipped open. The pilot went about, was sucked probably, halfway out of the plane, falling face down on the steps, and he reached out and just grabbed anything he could get his hand on, the railing, and held on for dear life. The co-pilot thought he was gone. He thought he had fallen out over the Atlantic. He immediately called to be able to turn back around and go back to the airfield. He called for the Coast Guard to come and to do an emergency search for him. And when he actually landed and, and people came to the plane, they found Dipsey with his face 12 inches away the landing strip. They literally had to get tools to pry his fingers open so tight was the grip on that handrail to get him away from the plane and to be checked out of the hospital. Now, in the moment that floor opened, Dempsey, frankly, could care less what he was holding on to. He would have held on to anything to save his life. But Paul says that can't be the case for us because not everything will be secure for us to hold on to. Not everything will provide salvation. Even now, not just for the Thessalonians, but for us in preparation for whatever this life has, perhaps we will see the coming of the man of lawlessness and the great apostasy. Maybe we won't, but even now, that mystery of lawlessness, he says, is at work through lies and deceptions and even false miracles, and it is meant to draw us away from the truth. Therefore, Paul says there is only one thing that we can grab onto. There is only one thing that will remain secure. Only one thing that by us abiding in our grip on, we will experience salvation the last day, and that is the truth of God's Word, particularly the truth that is summarized in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's here that we are reminded of who God is and what He has done for us. It is here that we can remain stable in the midst of even the most precarious and dangerous and disconcerting events in this life. This morning, therefore, we must cling to the truth of God's Word. We must believe it. We must love it. We must cherish it so that we can stand firm in our faith. To that end, let's pray to God. Father, we are thankful for the truth that you reveal to us. We are thankful, God, for your word which has a centering effect on us, God. It keeps us from moving too far away into error in any direction, constantly bringing us back on a sure footing. God, we're thankful that it tells us of your saving work for us in Christ, that, Father, in him we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. So, Father, we pray, God, whether it is in the context of end time speculation, or Father, Father, whether it is any matter of lies or deceit, that God, you would constantly be at work in our hearts, reminding us of what you have done for us in Christ, reminding us the truth of who he is and his great power and sovereignty over all things so that we not, will not become shaken by events. But Father, we will be able to stand firm, even as Paul called the Thessalonians, to stand firm in their faith. God, we ask all this in the name of our Savior. Amen.